If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share us and subscribe so you don't miss our next show. We'd love to talk with you again. Afternoon, everyone. I hope your week was good and you're looking forward to an enjoyable weekend ahead. The first week of the new year is winding down and politics continue to be a rolling dumpster fire. Let's see what we found in the ashes today. Two of the Democratic primary candidates are scheduled to debate Monday the 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Doubletree Hotel in Manchester, New Hampshire. It will be hosted by New England College and hosted by Josh McElveen. Joe Biden has decided there won't be any primaries. That is all we could deduce from looking at the way his competitors are being cheated out of a chance to debate him and in some states being left off the ballots altogether. Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson have decided to debate each other regardless. They met recently after the last Republican primary debate with another Biden challenger, Cenk Uyghur, on his YouTube platform, The Young Turks. Listen to episode 19 for my coverage of that discussion. This first actual debate will air on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. The next Republican primary debate is scheduled for Wednesday, January 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be hosted by CNN and will be at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Three candidates have qualified for it, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. But Trump will not be in attendance. Trump will be at a Fox News town hall that night. The requirements to make the cut were at least 10% polling in three national or Iowa polls. Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Asa Hutchinson did not make the grade to be on the debate stage next week. This is the last debate before we enter the actual voting cycle for the primaries. The first contest will be in Iowa on the 15th. The Republicans will have their caucus, but the Democrats will hold no event, having rearranged their primary schedule to favor South Carolina, a strong performing state for Biden in the last election. They were supposed to kick off their season there on February 3rd, but New Hampshire refused to play along and they will hold their primary on January 23rd as planned. The Democrats sought to punish that state for their rejection of the new arrangement and still may strip it of their delegates. Joe Biden didn't even file to be included on the New Hampshire ballot, so great was his confidence. The entry of Dean Phillips into the Democratic primary race, joining Marianne Williamson on the Democratic side to challenge Biden, upset that plan. Now the president must watch helplessly as the state runs its primary with ballots free of his name as a choice. The writing campaign was quickly spooled up where it will be up to voters to add his name since he couldn't be bothered. Nice. I used two different terms there for the different states who are trying to achieve the same goal. Why? Well, Iowa will be running a caucus. New Hampshire will be running a primary. Both do the same thing determined support and thus the awarding of delegates to candidates seeking the nomination as the presidential candidate to their respective parties, but the mechanics of the processes are slightly different. In a caucus, the supporters of the candidates do so out in the open at local gatherings. They will raise their hands or coalesce in groups to show their support for their chosen candidate with the votes being manually counted. This is the original way the process was done, but over time some states move towards the primary style, feeling it to be more fair. A primary looks just like a general election with voters casting secret ballots. There are more differences to consider that can impact the results. Parties are, after all, private organizations and they have members. Those members would obviously prefer that the direction of the party and the leaders it puts forward as candidates be determined by them, the members. Depending on the state, however, primaries may be open to outsiders. It's a strange idea, yes, but there are some states that allow non-members to vote in party elections. Iowa is, essentially, an open primary state. 
Even though Section 4338 of the Iowa Code stipulates that only registered party members can vote in a party's primary, which sure sounds closed, Section 4342 of that same code stipulates that a voter may change his or her party affiliation at the polls on primary election day and vote in the primary of a party other than the one to which he or she formerly belonged. So, theoretically, a voter could walk up to the booth, a true blue Democrat, flip red in the booth, vote for that party's candidate, and then flip back on the way out. This leaves the door open for nefarious attempts to affect an opposing party's very nomination process, and there have been instances of publicly discussed efforts to do so in the past. Some states, Nevada for example, which votes on February 6th, are closed primary states. Only card-carrying members of a party can vote in the party's primary there. My state is one of those. I refuse to align myself officially with any party, so my voice will not be heard at the polls until November 5th. So I'm counting on all of you out there to make good choices for me to pick from, please? There are states, however, that have a hybrid system, semi-closed primaries, if you will. New Hampshire is such a state. In New Hampshire, a Democrat cannot vote in a Republican primary, but an unaffiliated voter can vote in either. So if I was from the Granite State, I could be part of the process. The catch is, you can only get involved with one or the other. This presents an interesting dynamic, whereby the environment in one party's primary can actually affect the environment in the other party's primary. I will explain. On the GOP side, Trump continues to dominate the field. The battle is really for second place at the moment. Owing to New Hampshire's semi-closed primary system, his challengers are not just courting favor with Republican voters, but also unaffiliated ones because they can vote in a Republican primary if they want to. With the machinations the Democrats and Biden have been perpetrating, the results of the Democratic primary seem like a foregone conclusion. This means there was little of interest on that side for an unaffiliated voter to want to get involved with. The GOP primary, however, is just chock full of drama and candidates, and those candidates hope to win the interest and the support of the unaffiliated voters in that state. Then came Dean Phillips. No disrespect to Marianne Williamson, she was in the race from very early on and in most polls does better than Phillips, but the manner in which he came off the bench late and shook up the field got attention. This new candidate got some headlines and a little bit of momentum. Suddenly, the likes of Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis found themselves also running against the Democrats. The unaffiliated voters now had something else they could participate in, and they could only participate in one. They can vote in the Republican or the Democratic primary, but not both. If they're more interested in the Democratic primary, those votes are no longer available to compete for in the Republican primary, which helps Trump retain his lead over the rest of the field. Phillips is an interesting guy with some, granted, in my opinion, workable and refreshing policy ideas. Moderates who were trying to talk themselves into supporting someone who they felt was the easiest GOP pill to swallow might actually want to vote for a candidate like Phillips. After the votes are collected and counted, they must be awarded. Again, each state and party does this differently. Iowa will only hold the Republican caucus next week. The Democratic caucus was pushed back to March 5th. In those caucuses, though, delegates will be awarded proportionally to the candidates based on their performance in the election. New Hampshire, similarly, awards delegates proportionally. Some states are proportional unless a magic number is hit by a candidate, at which point it becomes winner-take-all and all delegates are awarded to that candidate. For example, Tennessee awards delegates proportionally, but should a candidate win two-thirds or more, they get awarded all the delegates. Winner-take-all states come in two flavors, true winner-take-all and the split variety, where the take-all part is by congressional district. 
the candidate that wins in the congressional district gets all of that district's delegates, not the whole state. The tally of all the various district contests results in the total delegates from that state that the candidate earns. Pennsylvania and Illinois are like this. True winner-take-all states award all the state delegates to the winner of the whole state. Florida is such a state. The Committee on Oversight and Accountability Wednesday released a report called White House for Sale, How Princes, Prime Ministers, and Premiers Paid Off President Trump. In it, the committee accuses former President Trump of accepting over $7.8 million in payments from, quote, foreign states and their leaders, including some of the world's most unsavory regimes. The report invokes Article 1 of the Constitution, Section 9, Clause 8. That clause reads, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. You know, I just want to give Trump a little credit here. Democrats... At least the politicians themselves, not so much their constituents, hate the Constitution. The document consistently stands in opposition to their social engineering and welfare state experiments, and before Trump, they bemoaned it as out of touch and in need of revision. We have seen a new love affair for the Constitution in the post-Trump world among the left. They have become ardent constitutional scholars in the past seven years. Granted, their motivations are not out of respect for the document and its protections of individual liberty and restriction on government overreach, but rather as a political tool against their enemies, but the homework is being done. Here's hoping some of the ideas enshrined in that document start to take root in the heads of these people while they look for ammunition rather than inspiration and change their attitudes overall. Anyway, that section of the Constitution is known as the Foreign Emoluments Clause. I'm sure I messed that pronunciation up. It pretty clearly lays out that a person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States cannot accept gifts or titles. The ambiguous part is, which offices qualify under that description? To me, I would assume all would, and I wager you would as well. But I did a shallow dive on this issue and read some thoughts from people who ask and ponder these questions for a living, and it's fuzzier than you would expect. There seems to be consensus that yes, appointed positions are covered, ambassadors, for example, but there are conflicting opinions if it applies to elected positions. There are actual examples of situations when a sitting president received a gift from a foreign source, but the presidents in question did different things. In one case, Andrew Jackson received a gold medal from the president of Columbia. When he conferred with Congress, they directed it be deposited in the Department of State. Benjamin Harrison was also offered medals from the governments of Brazil and Spain, and Congress authorized him to keep them, but he deferred to the legislature. That's the crucial point. John F. Kennedy was offered honorary Irish citizenship, but the Office of Legal Counsel advised against accepting it over concern it would run afoul of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Again, we have a president seeking guidance and accepting it. It seems conclusive, right? Ah, but let's look at two other items of interest. When then-Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton was asked by the Senate to produce a financial statement listing all persons holding office under the United States and their salaries, members of Congress were not on that list, nor was the President. That is solid evidence that the thinking of the time, at least in the opinion of Hamilton, the holder of the country's purse strings, was that those offices were not included. This is further backed up by the actions of our first President, George Washington, 
Washington is known to have accepted at least two diplomatic gifts. We know this because it was openly reported in the press at that time. He didn't ask for or receive permission to accept these gifts from Congress and nobody made an issue out of it. This further enforces the idea that the framers of the Constitution did not include the President in the list of people and offices governed by the Foreign Emoluments Clause. What is different about all these instances, however, is that they were official and clearly framed as foreign gifts to the presidents in question. What occurred with Trump is markedly different. Instead of gifts given out in the open to the president as official actions, the money was routed to Trump-owned businesses. For example, the Saudi royal family spent at least $615,400 at Trump properties during his administration. Trump would later sign a $100 billion arms deal with the Saudis in 2017. Trump continues to work with the Saudis, with Trump golf courses hosting live golf tournaments. Live is financed by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. When journalist Jamal Khashoggi was killed and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on orders from the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Trump sought to undermine the findings of our own CIA, saying at the time, our intelligence agencies continue to assess all information, but it could very well be that the Crown Prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. That's pretty chilling. An American president running interference for a foreign despot in opposition of our own intelligence experts. Paid off? Additionally, the Washington Post reported that Saudi lobbyists reserved a block of rooms at a Trump-owned property, paying for an estimated 500 nights at Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel in just three months. The lobbyists also reserved rooms to bring people into the city to lobby against the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, a law permitting victims of the September 11, 2001 attacks to sue Saudi Arabia for its role in facilitating the attacks. Some of the countries involved in their expenditures include the United Arab Emirates, $65,225, the Philippines, $74,810, Malaysia, $248,962, India, $282,764, Kuwait, $303,372, Qatar, $465,744. There were several others at much smaller amounts, but the paradigm of Trump using influence on the donor's behalf was consistent. I saved the best for last. China, you know. China. $5,572,548 on hotel bills at three of Trump's hotels paid by the Embassy of China, Hainan Airlines Holding Company Lee, and the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. The details regarding his interaction with China are staggering. Sweetheart deals for his companies and family in gaining trademarks in that country in addition to the money being funneled into his hotels sure look to have gotten the Chi-Coms a bit of influence. Trump looked the other way while Beijing crushed the Hong Kong protests and committed other human rights atrocities. Trump lifted restrictions on Huawei as it sought to further metastasize itself throughout our Defense Department, infrastructure, and telecommunications networks. The list of shading dealings goes on, but you get the point. This is not a president getting a gold trinket from another president in an official capacity. This is bribery and influence peddling to the detriment of individuals and nations. This is laundering of those bribes through private companies owned by a sitting president. While the case that the Foreign Emoluments Clause covers elected officials may be up for debate, the clear indications of these documents are not. This is dirty. This is crime. 
Don't invoke the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Invoke RICO. RICO is the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Law. The law passed in 1970 as a way to go after organized crime, and it was very effective. Prior to this law, prosecutors had to charge each crime individually, and connecting crimes beyond the actual perpetrators to associates who facilitated and directed the criminal activity was very hard. Under RICO, all that must be shown is, one, that the defendant agreed to commit the substantive racketeering offense through agreeing to participate in two racketeering acts, two, that he knew the general status of the conspiracy, and three, that he knew the conspiracy extended beyond his individual role. The activity seen in this report is more than enough to pursue Trump on racketeering charges. Trump is already in court in Georgia under RICO charges for his involvement in the attempt to change the outcome of the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia and other states. This would not be new for him. This is the same Donald Trump that would very much like to again be the Republican nominee and again potentially be the president. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave a comment here and on Podchaser. It helps us know how we're doing and what topics you'd like to hear in the future. Have a great day.